The EY Ireland CEO Outlook Report is out now. Search ey.com slash ie slash CEO and discover the key topics on the minds of Ireland's leading CEOs. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. Last week at the fourth Irish Times Business Awards, Pat McCann, co-founder of the Delata Hotel Group, was honoured with the award for Distinguished Leadership. And I'm delighted to say that Pat is my guest on this week's show. His hotel career began in 1969 when he joined the Ryan Hotel chain from school. He spent 20 years there before moving to Jury's, where he rose to become chief executive. Pat left Jury's Doyle in 2006 and the following year he set up Delata, which has since gone on to become the biggest ever hotel group in Ireland. Pat retired from Delata towards the end of last year, but remains busy with seven jobs that you'll hear about later. He has had a fascinating career spanning 52 years, and in this interview he offers valuable advice for those thinking of a career in the hotel sector or to budding entrepreneurs looking to set up their own businesses. Here we go. Pat McCann, welcome to Inside Business. You've been on here before, of course, but late last year you retired from your role as Chief Executive with Delata after 52 years in the hospitality industry. How's retirement treating you? Pretty good, actually. Uh, Surprisingly so, because I felt I might have bigger challenges, but I've made myself very busy. Um, and deliberately so, so that I have a lot of things going on every day of my life, uh, which is good and maybe not so good. Um, so it's it's been easier than I thought. So when was the last day in Delata? On the last day in October, I think the last working day, I think it was the 29th of October was my last working day in Delata. And then I had a number of holidays and things like that. So I officially... Uh, finished at the end of December. So how did it feel waking up on the first working day after your last day in the office, as it were, um, as a a retired CEO? Well, you know, funny enough, uh, because of the pandemic, that had changed a lot and it changed our working practices a lot. Now, for me, it never changed anything because I I went into the office every single day um, because we had a lot of activity going on right throughout the the empire for want of a better word and um so things were very different i I wonder if we had been in normal circumstances would it have been a bit more challenging um but it wasn't but like the reality delata is my baby and will always be my baby uh whether i like it or not it's a fact of life it's you know when i left juries the pangs weren't as great because it wasn't a business I started, even though I was heavily involved in the jury's inside. I I didn't have the same kind of connection. Whereas with Delata, because I started it and built it up to what it was, that made it a bit more challenging. But to be honest with you, I've coped better than I thought. And you mentioned Delata being your baby. You're still a shareholder, of course. So I you am checking the share price every day? No, not really, to be honest with you. I don't. I don't. I under under some of the rules anyway, I have to hold a level of shareholding for a couple of years. So so I just let it run. Uh, I wouldn't be selling anyway. Today's price is just too low. So <laughs> what would be a good price? What what do you think would be a fair price for the last one? I think it should be around the six euro, um, and I think that's where where it it starts then to get kind of serious. But that's where it where it when you look at the potential and all of the new assets that have opened and all of the things that's going on. Um, you know, it's it means that that uh, it has a good bit to go. It's it's just over four euro or whatever it is. I don't even know what it is today, uh, but but that's that's driven 
I suppose you come out of COVID and then you had the unfortunate Ukrainian war that uh, kind of stymied its growth. But every hotel stock in Europe is in the same space. So it's not unique or different in that sense. Let's go back to the beginning because you started your career with uh, the Ryan's Hotel yeah. Group. I think that was a listed company. Uh, it was, absolutely was, yes. And you started very much at the bottom and worked your way I did. Up. I started as a training manager in 1969 uh, and did everything. And in those days, like the training wasn't as sophisticated as it is today. You, you, you train through departments and then you came out as a, a kind of a junior manager. And that was exactly so. I spent three years going through the various departments, then a junior management position in the London Ryan when that was opening in 1972. And that was my first real hotel opening. Um, and it kind of took off from there then that, that I grew w- with the company, came back uh, to, to Ireland with Ryan's for a few times and went back again to London. I spent nine years in London between 69 and 81. Is that where the Arsenal connection came in? or That is absolutely correct, Like because I, I lived within walking distance of Highbury. Uh, and um, that, that's how kind of I got, got sucked in by the team. And it, like it was a, a great time for a young fella from the west of Ireland being at these matches, and particularly the midweek matches. I loved the midweek matches. There were there was something different about them. And uh, so, what years are we talking about? Were, were they the Brady years and Stable? Were, and, yes, yeah. absolutely. And O'Leary and all of those, and Pat Jennings and Goal, and all of those great, great guys, and Charlie George. And so there was a, there was a lot of good, exciting players uh, that that were kind of there and. Uh, it was a joy to watch, but the game was very different. And, and I suppose, you know, the attendances were different. And, and, and during those years, you had a lot of violence at, at matches. Thankfully, in hybrid, it was very little. Uh, there, wasn't, there wasn't anything like that. But in your, in your own club, like in, in Stamford Bridge, there used to be a lot of issues. Tottenham had a lot of issues. So there was always issues if you went as a traveling supporter. So invariably, you didn't go. Yeah, um, sure. So. Now, you're, you hail from Sligo and you joined the hotel industry uh, straight from school. What attracted you about hotels? I started to work in Ross's Point during my school years. I started at 16 in the AIDS country in Ross's Point. And the funny thing about it is I, I, there was something about the business that I loved. And, I, I, you know, you could never define it or figure out what it was. But it kind of sucked me in. So when, when I did my leaving cert, um, a fellow called Hugh Duffy approached me and said, would I go on the Ryan management program? Ironically, I was due to do teacher training in Cork, uh, woodwork and science. Don't ask me what the combination of that was. I can't even remember the details of it. Uh, and you can imagine telling my parents that I wasn't going to take up this teacher training scholarship that I got. And instead, I was going to take on a job in the hotel business like for them that was alien but as it transpired it wasn't actually it worked out well yeah how did the leaving cert go for you a, a very average actually academically i wasn't great i'll be honest were with you good at work i was i was good i was very good at science and science subjects um and i suppose i put a lot of effort into those woodwork wasn't one of my uh, it wasn't taught at the time so uh but I was good. I was good with my hands and good on on the on the science subjects. But apart from that, 
and I, I was I was bone lazy. I'll be honest with you on on the academic side, so I didn't put any effort into it at all. I just kind of scraped through it, and that was the kind of the object of the exercise: scrape through it and get there. And if I had got four honors, I'd have got a university scholarship, but I only got one. Which so, which one? Science. Science. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know, um, one is better than some people do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I got there. But but like you know, it was nothing to uh, to get excited about. I'll be honest with you. So academically, you know, I I, I was I was never going to be in that space. So nineteen sixty nine, a very different Ireland back then. The tourism industry very different back then as well. Yes. You know, would have been very few hotels compared to now. Yeah. Very few visitors from abroad compared to now. And the work must have been very different as well. Oh, just totally different. And I mean, like like the hours were long, but nobody noticed actually. It was we were having great fun, you know. And and when you come from an area of Sligo where I come from, like like it was I almost a sense of relief, you know, that that you know, you were doing something in a nice environment because that's the thing that's different about it. And uh I suppose for me it it meant that I was able to Kind of use my skills, which which as as a communicator have uh, and and uh, things like that. That you know, I I I I took very easily to. But it was a very different industry, and and like everything was done, like you had no prepackaged food, so everything had to be prepared. Like like I spent when I was doing my chef training, I was in the larder, as it was called. And, you know, you'd half a cow would come in and you'd have a sheep and you'd have a pig and you had to do all the the butchering of that. Um, so did was, you do it? I did. Oh, absolutely. I loved it. I loved that part. Of, and who I, taught you those skills? I, there was, there was a, a chef in, in Killarney, a fellow called Brian McCarthy, and he was really good on this space. And um, he he taught me everything I know about meat and about joints and and I, I used to have my my fridges organized because you had to hang your own meat, you know, to get to get. Obviously, it, it needs a 24, 28 day cycle. So I had my my cold rooms all set up on a cycle where I had everything. And that that was was great for me. And, you know, you'd be out in a cold veg house peeling potatoes. And so if somebody came in here now and slapped the sheep on the table, you'd be able to dismember. Not a bother. Not about piece by piece. I was actually, ironically, I was down in um, in Kilmac Thomas for a few days over Easter, and there's a fantastic butcher there, and he grows all his own meat and he kills all his own meat. And on one of the days, I went out the back to see. He invited me out to see his operation, and I said to myself, I could do all the things that he was doing, apart from the killing. That was that. I wouldn't. I wouldn't be able to stomach that. But everything else, I could do. Yeah, well, that's fair enough. That's pretty impressive. Tell us about growing up in Sligo and about your parents. What did they do? Well, my father was in a timber yard in Ballymote, and like when I say a timber yard, they did all sorts of things. They were a bit like a, a tiny kind of uh, Grafton type of uh, outlet or Chadwick's or whatever it was. You know, building supplies, glass, all of that sort of thing. So he did that for years. In the first years of his life, he worked with in in Temple House, which was with Lord Percival, uh, and he did the farming work with him. And then his health, he got asthma. Well, actually, he thought he had asthma. He had uh, COPD. Everybody had diagnosed him as asthma, but it was actually um, COPD. And he moved from there because they felt that the the dust and all of that. So so he had got a few great years out of that. And my mother was was a homemaker. Um, and 
think back to those days, we were self-reliant. So you had to be very resourceful because we had no money. Like like money was was very tight. And but everybody was the same. So there was there was never any kind of competition going on. Everybody was 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 relatively poor and everybody had to be able to exist and make things work. And my mother was great. She made a lot of her own clothes. She 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 did everything in the house and we grew our own vegetables. We had chickens and pigs and 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 turkeys and we milked a few cows and we made our own butter. So we did all of those things. So that's the kind of environment you grew up in. You know, so I, I used to always tell the story about my mother. She used to, in those days, the flour came in, in linen bags. And and she used to make our underpants out of these linen bags. And I used to always tell the story jokingly that for years we used to go around and we had hearts to rice written across our backsides because that was the brand of flour, so, <laughs> which was a kind of a funny way of explaining it. So you're a jack of all trades. You, you could milk cows, you could make your own butter and yes. you can dismember animals and cut them up into pieces uh, set, for, set for human consumption. Absolutely. But you can't 100%. kill them. I can't do that. Right. Even though you grew up in, you know, you had a farming background. I, well, I, ironically, when I say that, like when, when I used to, when I left home and I'd go home at Christmas, my job with my father was to kill the turkey. <laughs> and that was no easy task, let me tell you. Mm, no, I can imagine. Um, so you had 20 years with Ryan's yes. and then the move to Jury's. How did that come about? I was on the board of the Irish Hotels Federation with Peter Malone, the then president. And he got promoted to MD of the company. Uh, replacing Michael McCarthy, and his job was to replace himself. And we got to know each other very well, so he made me an offer I couldn't refuse. Uh, even though I was well situated in Ryan's, um, and Ryan's was a, a bigger company at the time, ironically, um, but he persuaded me that he had plans and that he wanted to do things. So I took it, and a great move, I have to say, great move. And then the merger came with uh, the Doyle Group. That was in 1999. Uh, it wasn't the merger, by the way. We no. acquired them. <laughs> Just to be clear. <laughs> okay, uh, well, I don't think they necessarily uh, characterised it that way. But anyway, uh, there was a coming together of, 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 of the two. Of the two companies, yes. Um, and you mentioned at the awards the other night that, uh, about Jury's Inns. And I think you talk about Delata being your yes. baby. But I've always had the sense that Jury's Inns uh, was a, a baby of yours as well. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Tell us about that. And I suppose, you know, going back to the, the concept, when I arrived in Jury's, I wasn't involved in the initial part of the concept. But but I didn't like what they were proposing. And I, I said to Peter Malone, who was the MD, I said, I want to take you on tour. So I took him across to the UK and we zigzagged down through the UK looking at the various what we call mid-scale properties. And then I took him to Paris and we drove from Paris down through Dijon, cross into Switzerland, up through Strasbourg, up into Frankfurt, uh, looking again at what the mid-scale would do. And out of that, the concept came to light. And like we did lots of unusual things with the way we staffed it. So we didn't have a a waiter, we had we had what we call GSS. So everybody was trained to do everything. So typically there was a lot of split shifts in the industry at the time. So we got rid of all of those. So you come in at seven o'clock and you work till three o'clock. And in that time you would have come in, done breakfast, you'd have gone on to do rooms or you might have opened up the bar. So you were you were skilled in lots of different areas. 
And that that was a great way of getting people into the industry and giving them, I suppose, a level of flexibility as well as everything else. So we had our famous GSS uh, process, which which worked exceptionally well. So presumably, I mean, that broke down barriers, obviously, presumably previously people who were on the waiting team or yes. in the bar or whatever, they wouldn't have cleaned rooms. So did that mean lower wages? No, absolutely not, because we had no service charge. So wages actually, uh, I suppose, outside service charge was much higher, in fact. So it was a different, a totally different setup and a different concept. You always described it as three-star budget plus. Yes. What does that mean? It means that the physical asset was actually a four-star. But the level of services that you might expect to get, for example, you wouldn't have things like fine dining or anything like that within an, an environment like that. So it was really down to the services. We didn't have portrait service, for example. So all of those things. And that meant that it could be very cost efficient and very cost effective. And an interesting stat, we opened Jury's Christchurch Inn in May 1993. And I left the company in 2006. And, and the occupancy in that hotel every year for 13 years never fell below 95%. Which is incredible because Sunday night is usually a quiet night and, in the industry. And you have ups and downs during mm. the week and you have all sorts of things. that, But it never, ever, on an annual basis, never fell below 90%. The demand for the product was so high. Uh, and and the same happened as we went to the UK when we opened in Islington. Exactly the same thing happened. So it's it it was it was a concept that went down very well. And this is that you were able to give a very good physical product, but, but not uh, I suppose what the kind of services you might expect in a four star. But you had a four star room. It was ultimately sold for an eye-watering number yes. to a consortium that was... 1.165 billion, to be exact. An incredible figure. Yes. Um, I remember uh, getting a phone call. I was standing at a bus stop actually waiting for a coach at the airport and some, somebody gave me a call, somebody who was connected with the deal gave me a call to say, it's done and this is the number. Mm. And I just couldn't believe it. Yeah. Like I put a value on jury's ends at between, somewhere between 700 and 800 million at the time. And that was as good as it got. And beyond that, it simply wouldn't wash its face. And it didn't, did it? No, it didn't. Uh, it's been through various hands uh, since then. Yeah. And we, we learned recently that the, the brand itself has gone to go Yes, now. it's going to go, yeah. yeah. And, and, and How does that make you feel? That's sad in a way, but like it's, it's, it's life, you know. I've moved on from it. So, but it is sad in a way that it will disappear um, because it's been great in many ways. And, and you know, you would, you would have a little tinge of upset you know, again, something that you started and were heavily involved in and developed over a good number of years. So, so yeah, and of course, um, the two properties in Ballsbridge when you were in Jury's Doyle, you you sold both of those. Yes, to Sean, Sean Dunn. Dunn. Yes, uh, again for eye watering sums. I think it was a combined four hundred million, was it? Four hundred million, uh, two hundred and seventy five million for the uh, Ballsbridge site and one hundred and twenty five million for the Barclay Court site. And the Ballsbridge site still isn't redeveloped. No, but that now will become the new American embassy. Yeah. And the, the other side, the old Berkeley Court uh, Hotel, is still being worked on. Yes. And there there are luxury uh, apartments, apartments. Super apartments. Going in there. But you did, did you buy one? No. I don't have that kind of money. 
I'm a poor man from the west of Ireland. <laughs> and you told me before in this podcast, it was like a, an out-of-body experience uh, that you had when you opened the envelopes and you realised the quantum of money. Well, well, was it was interesting. I, I had set a target because a piece of land down in Lad Lane had sold for something around 30 million an acre. And I had kind of the uh, the idea that if um, we could get 30 million an acre, for our five acres, we'd get 150 million. That was my kind of price. And the first envelope was opened was 126 million. And I said, oh God, this is not going to go well. And actually the second envelope was Sean Dunn's. And um, that was the 275 million. And we had another bid of 273, 271 and 268. So we had some very, very close to each other. So it was mind blowing that uh, that that would happen, you know. And you know, we did we did. I, when I think back, like I won't say there were funny things, but you know, when you came in to lodge your your bid, you had to bring in a a, a bank draft for a certain amount. And what we did was we were concerned that if, if we only got a few bids, so we started the numbers at at six. So the first fellow come in got six. He was number six, and he thought there was five others before, which wasn't true at all. <laughs> How many bids did you get? I think we got eight or nine. Right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, and were you thinking at the time when the envelopes were open, you saw all the numbers on the table, you thought you saw that 275 was the highest uh, bid. Were you thinking to yourself, this is nuts. These fellows are never going to make a, a, a book on this. Well, we the logic of it, we couldn't understand. I'll be honest with you. Like, 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 and I suppose who the, the people buying it had a different mindset as to what they were going to do with the site. Like it was going to be residential development and that wasn't our game. So obviously we said, well, somebody knows better than we do. Obviously we couldn't make that kind of money as a hotel if we were there for a thousand years. So the, the idea was that, you know, people thought that we sold the Balls Bridge and the Barclay Court sites because the hotels weren't profitable. That wasn't true at all. They were very profitable, but they could never match what we could get by reinvesting that money in different spaces. And that's that's why we sold. We As a PLC, it was incumbent on us to, to maximize shareholder value. And that's exactly what we did. Now, you were 17 years with Jury's Doyle. It was taken off the stock market. Yes, in 2005. And members of the Doyle family uh, and BC families, yeah, yeah, uh, effectively controlled it. Correct. How did you get on with them? I, I, to be honest, I, I I had a very good working relationship uh, with both Doyles and Beatties, uh, but I I always felt that we would be strategically opposed, and and therefore I stayed on for a year, and then I decided that it, it wasn't going to work for me. And what do you mean by strategically opposed? Well, they, they they probably wanted to go off and do more four or five star, whereas I felt, you know, the, the continued rollout of the jury's ends was going to be the more profitable element of it. Um, and that's essentially where we left it. I I went off and did my own thing. So, And when you left jury's oil, had you always got the latter in your mind? Was that something you were working on in the back of your head even? Yeah, it, 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 I suppose I had this idea. Like, like I, I, I'll be honest with you, I did make a bid. I had a backers for the jury's ins, uh, but we got nowhere near. I don't think we even got through the first round because... What was your bid? It was something around 800 million. Okay, which was the, the number you felt? Yes. 
yeah, was doable. Was doable, yeah, or made sense. Uh, and um, I then who are your backers? A private equity firm out of London, Senvin, who I ironically did a lot of work with. Uh, great, great group of guys, um, and we just felt that, that it was a bridge too far at that point. So, okay, so Delata, there's kind of an idea floating in the back of your head for something like yes. Delata. You leave Jewelry's Doyle. Uh, so how did Delata come to fruition? So, I, I, like, I had this idea I needed to do something. And I, I suppose, you know, this was the end of 2006, beginning of 2007. And out of the blue, I got a call from a guy called Rory Quirk, who was one of the senior guys with TVC Holdings PLC. And he said to me, we have an idea we'd like to meet you with. So he, the th- there was three of us. Gavin Burke was the other uh, other guy from TVC. And we met on a beautiful, sunny February day in the Radisson in Stilorgan. And it was, I, I, I always think it was the coming together. Of, Here were the guys with the money. I had the idea. And it was perfect, actually. And we've been great friends ever since. Like, like the, I, I meet regularly with the guys. Um, and that's how good the relationship was. Now we had some very hairy days. I was going to say that was what two thousand and seven. And and everybody was talking when we were raising the money about a bit of a credit crunch, you know. But it'll go away. It'll be fine. Don't be worrying about it. And we didn't. At the end, we didn't have too many problems in raising the money. Um, but the but, credit crunch came. But in the credit big style in two thousand and eight. Like in two thousand eight, we were still fine. Actually, it was really two thousand and nine was the worst year. And I remember we had an EBITDA of two hundred thousand. In, in 2009. Um, and I, ironically, uh, the, the, um, we started into the management contract business in 2009. And that really saved us. And of course, because we had the company set up quasi PLC, and it's, I always give this advice to companies, if they're ever thinking about having a liquidity event at some point in the future, Start out as you mean to go along. What I mean by that is put in all of the good governance, all of the accounting practices that allows you to do that. Because when we floated in 2014, we only made the decision finally in November of 2013. And three months later, we were listed. Like you can't do that unless you're set up properly. But that's what worked for us for receivers and banks because we ticked the governance boxes. Yeah, just to explain, so the crash came, there were a lot of uh, hotels and properties that were heavily exposed on the debt side. Banks moved in or other creditors moved in. They needed somebody to run the hotel, somebody with experience, etc. And they looked to you, you offered your services. We did. And we took 40-odd hotels under various lengths of terms. And, and the deal was very simple, was that when we took over the hotel, the bank our receiver would have to put no more money into it. We we would run the hotel, make enough to pay our fees and do any maintenance capex work that needed to be done, all of that. So we took all of this, this thing up, the idea that they'd be shoveling cash into it forever. <clears throat> that disappeared the day we took over. And that worked very well as well. So So we had a lot of good things going. But like when you extrapolated that forward, you suddenly realized that in, in essence, You'd run out of road very quickly on that because these management contracts would come to an end as the market started to recover. And ironically, the Ballsbridge Hotel, the the old juries in Ballsbridge, became one of the one of the uh, entities that you managed. Correct. And I remember meeting Sean Dunn on the day 
And Sean said to me, I gave you 400 million for this, and now you're taking it back for nothing. You know, which wasn't quite true, but but that was his reading on the on the on the situation. Yeah, who was the bank there? Ulster Bank. Ulster Bank, yeah. Right. Okay. Did it work out on each of those forty properties? Were you able to keep to that situation? Oh, where absolutely. There was no cash. Required? Absolutely, and in some cases, we 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 worked. It, we got the original owners back in. Okay. Which cases? Can you give I, an example? I won't give an example because that's right. unfair to the the right. people concerned. Some we tried and failed. Okay, so then you move into the next phase, uh, Delata. I mean, the economy starts to pick up yeah. again. We're out of our bailout. Delata then uh, floats on the stock market, and it's been it's been a, a big growth story uh, since then. You've moved I, out of I, Ireland yeah, as well. I, I suppose just to move back a little bit, like in two thousand and twelve, Dermot Crowley joined me, and Dermot was my head of uh, uh, procurement on, and uh, acquisitions in in uh, in juries. So. What we had done in 2012 was started to look at private equity as to how that might fund our growth. But to be quite honest with you, we spent, I always say, we spent a year faffing around with private equity and it was never going to work because they couldn't see the value that we could see in the assets. So that's what we decided that we'd go back to the spaces and the place we knew best, which was the public markets, because I'd spent all my life in or around the public markets. Uh, and we said we'd go back out. And ironically, a lot of the investors that were with me in juries are with me in Delata. And it's it's a small world and yet we still have the same people and the same fund managers that we would have dealt with 20 years previous still, still there. With increasing pressures, Ireland's CEOs are working hard to navigate the rapidly evolving business landscape. The EY Ireland CEO Outlook Report takes a deeper dive into the topics that are on the minds of Irish CEOs at the moment, and importantly, the issues that leaders should be paying attention to. Discover the key actions to consider as you seek to reshape the future of your organisation at ey.com slash ie slash CEO. Now, the interesting thing is that you, you joined Ryan's, which was a, an established group. You joined Jury's which was an established group. I know you launched Jury's Inns, but that was kind of an extension. Yeah. But the latter was something different because you launched two new brands into the market, Maldron first and subsequently Clayton. Uh, Clayton. And, the, you know, the landscape had changed significantly in the, you know, 30 mm. odd years or whatever uh, at that point that you'd, you'd been in the industry. So how did you manage that? How did I manage to start a company after being involved in it? Well, it just launched two new brands into the market that now, I mean, it's the biggest hotel chain in the country. Yes, and the biggest hotel chain ever to exist, actually, in Ireland. Um, and I suppose I, I always had what I call an entrepreneurial spirit. And I always felt that there was an opportunity to pull a group of existing hotels together and build new ones to add to the portfolio. What's the magic in terms of choosing a brand? I mean, where did the Maldron and Clayton, where did the inspiration for those come from? To be honest with you, um, Maldron started out as Maldon. And the guys down in the Malton in Killarney felt that it was too close. So as typical in, in Ireland, I went down and I had a cup of tea and I agreed to round the D. So it became Maldron. Uh, because... You know, when you're trying to find a hotel brand, trying to find something where you can get the URLs and you get the .coms and the .uk's and .ie's, extraordinarily difficult because there's always somebody has the name registered. And so that's how Maldron came about. It was something that 
I think we spent in total maybe 15,000 doing the branding for Maldron. And, and Clayton came about, I heard we had these experts in, and to be honest, it was pretty rubbish. And I, I remember I, I was getting out of the shower one morning and I said to myself, what a fool I am. We have in Galway, the Clayton Hotel in Galway. We have everything that we need for that. So I, we were having a meeting with the, with the branding experts on that day. And I went in and I said, this is going to be very short. Our new name is Clayton. Give me the artwork and let's get on with it. And that was it. So that's how it came about. It was, there's, there's nothing ever kind of big. No secret or, sauce. No secret sauce. No secret sauce. And it, it, it works so well. Like it's, it's, and, and both of them have traveled well. Like that's the beauty of it. Like they're in the UK now and well established in the UK. But there'll be lots of young business people out there, people with an entrepreneurial bent, who'll be thinking, how do I get a business from zero to, you know, being the biggest in its sector in the country and then overseas expansion as well? What's the, what's the magic that happens in between? So, so there's a lot of different elements that make it up. I mean, primarily it's people. Uh, and we use what we call a decentralized management model. And very few hotel companies use that. Everything is, is centralized. But we, we are decentralized. And what that means is you give autonomy to your hotel general manager to run their hotel as if they owned it. And that's critical. Including on CapEx? Inclu they come up with their CapEx budget. We scrutinize it at center. Oh, they, they now scrutinize it at center. And then they get their allocation for the year in terms of their CapEx, what, what they'll get to spend or what projects they'll work on. But it comes from them in the first instance. And I suppose... But that gives them real ownership. I mean, real ownership. Like when we took over the Double Tree, which is now Clayton Burlington Road, that was a very centralized management structure. Like they had no autonomy on room rate or anything. That was all managed at Watford. Whereas we decided we would obviously do our decentralized model and we haven't looked back. So that's that's one of the, the key ingredients and i suppose the other thing that we did was invest in the product so every year four percent of total turnover went into a capex budget that was spent on the hotels so the hotels were in good shape um uh, and and that, that was important and to maintain them in that good shape so there was a lot of different little elements that but i suppose being clear on your strategy build build out in your home country then move to the next. And then, you know, from that, you can see that Delata now has moved into Germany and will do very well there um, because the model will work very well there. So that's that's what makes it work, being clear about where what you're doing and where you're going and how you're going to get there. And there's no such thing as a lovely smooth line. It doesn't, it's, it's, it's a bit like this. And you have to be able to take the good and the bad. I should say, listener, Pat is indicating a very bumpy ride on a on a on a, an imaginary graph. <laughs> it's a bit like a roller coaster. Uh, why four percent, by the way, for capex? Why not five or six percent? Well, it, you see, because we were lucky in the sense that all our properties were relatively young. Like if we had a lot of old, uh, uh, more challenging properties, you'd be talking about six seven percent. But because we had a young portfolio and. By and large, we, we were building new hotels as well. So, and their revenue was going into that part as well. And of course, there'll be very little capex spent on those for the first three years or so. 
Sure. Now, let's fast forward to, um, what, March 2020 when COVID hits. Yes. Uh, something none of us had ever experienced before in our lives. And we had never experienced a situation where entire countries were locked down yeah. and sectors were locked down. Now, I know you weren't entirely locked down. I know you kept some of your hotels open and you were tipping away, uh, offering uh, rooms to uh, frontline workers and that type of thing. But to all, all intents and purposes, your your business yeah. was, was shut gone. down. Yeah. How did you respond? So, so essentially, I was actually in the States when COVID started. I was in New York doing an investor a few days, and I was due to go down. I was I was president of IBEC at the time, and I was due to go down and do the shamrock with Mr. Trump and Mr. Varadkar at the time. And uh, I decided I would abandon all that and go back because I felt like you talked about their lockdown, and I said to myself, countries are going to start locking down. So I decided to get out while I could. We got back, got the team together, and we decided we'd do three things. We'd look after our people, we'd look after our customers, and we'd look after our cash. And if we said, if we do those three things well, we're going to come out of this okay. And that's exactly what happened. Like, like the way we looked after our customers, because you can imagine we had hundreds and hundreds of thousands of reservations in the system. All of those had to be dealt with. Deposits had to be taken care of, all of those things. And we did all of that to make sure that we, we stayed close to our customer. With our people, we kept all of our key teams in place. So none of those were laid off. Obviously, we couldn't keep everybody in place. But for those who laid off, we ran development programs. And in, in 2020, I think we ran something like 90,000 courses for people um, online. And, and, and that meant that as we got back up opening, we had a pool of people who were more skilled who came back to us very quickly. So we didn't have the challenges. A lot of companies, like it surprised me in the UK where hotel companies just shut up shop, let everybody go, no communication, nothing. We <coughs> didn't do that. Airport. Yeah, we didn't do that. We, we kept in constant contact. And... and you know, we were great, lucky we have great technologies that, to allow us to remain in contact with our people. Um, and and that that was good. So I was able to speak to them every few weeks, uh, either as a small group or the entire workforce. And did you have any business interruption insurance or pandemic-related insurance? No, you wouldn't get it. And you wouldn't get it for that anyway, the way our insurance was. So we had no insurance in that sense that would allow us to to claim. How anything. did you manage the cash? We did a number of things. We went back to our shareholders. We sold uh, our, our Charlemont, um, Clayton Charlemont, uh, and we agreed new terms with our banking club. So between all three, it meant that we were in great shape. Now, ironically, we didn't need all the money, but but that's how we managed our cash. How much did you generate through those three means? So sixty-five million from Clayton Charlemont, ninety odd million from our shareholders, and I think we got forty million additional from our banks. Right. Okay. Um, and you've emerged the the group. Obviously, has emerged the other side. Absolutely the, in great then, shape. In mm. great shape. And I know you've left the business now a number of months, but how, how, what's your read of how the hotel sector is doing here at the minute? Well, you see, if you take Dublin at this point in time, 25% of all hotel rooms in Dublin are occupied by Ukrainians. Um, and that's, that's where they either have full hotels, 
taken over or whatever. So, so the capacity has reduced. So it means that the rest is performing well at this point in time. Um, and the latter will have its AGM uh, on Thursday. So we'll get a better sense of how that's shaping up. And Delat has offered the rooms to Ukrainians as well. I think it? I'm not a hundred percent, but there there are certainly some rooms that have been offered to Ukrainians. Yes. So, what's your view on that, Pat? How sustainable is that? I mean, how long should Ukrainian refugees coming to this country be expected to live in a hotel room? Like to be honest, with you, it's difficult. But like, I suppose you know when you look at the alternatives, you know that that you're living in a tinted village in Poland somewhere, or that at least you have heat and warmth, you know. So so I suppose for a period of time it's 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 okay, but it's not okay forever. Um but, but what the length of time is I have no idea. But it'll have an impact on the tourist industry, surely. Yeah, I, to to a certain extent. Um uh, but I, I suppose we're we're looking in one sense in, in particularly in Dublin where we have a lot of new stock had come on stream. So that that'll absorb some of that. So so we still have a sizable stock of hotels and hotel rooms available to uh, tourism. And there's a lot of commentary now about cost of living. We know about the cost of living pressures, particularly on the energy side. But we're, we're beginning to see it uh, in consumer-facing businesses and restaurants and pubs, prices going up, um, hotels, car parking at Dublin Airport, etc. All of this is, is now in focus. That's going to be a real challenge for the hotel industry, isn't it? It will, absolutely. And they have to be able to respond um, to actually all of this but like I'll be honest with you like like cost in our sector was always a challenge so there's the, there's nothing particularly new in this it's probably a little bit more extreme but but there's nothing new in having to manage cost and look at better ways and the use of technologies to do things that will allow you to reduce cost and even down to the way with your energy how you manage your energy using technology to do that like there's there's always something that you can save, uh, but it is it is a challenge. Is Ireland expensive as a tourism product? Not at all. Like like I, I suppose you you'd often hear people coming back from Spain and they've had a week and they, they paid X Y and Z. But you're not comparing like what like. Like you you need to if you're comparing Dublin, you need to go to Madrid or Barcelona or wherever one of the the, the cities rather than the actual. Uh, I suppose mm. it's just that we did a lot of staycationing during the pandemic we because we had no choice. And I think the view is, I mean, let's face it, not a lot of people were coming to Dublin to staycation. It was we were going down. It was the actually surprising how good it was in Dublin. Yeah, and it was surprising how good Dubliners use Dublin hotels just to get out for a night. Because if you remember, hotels yeah. were able to open up, restaurants weren't, so they were able to get out for a night. So that was quite sure. a lucrative part of it. Okay, but. In terms of people going to other parts of the country, yeah, um, I, I suppose you know a lot of people would have said to me, uh, "You just realise how expensive Ireland is." You know, they had a nice time yeah. um, and they stayed in good facilities and mm. so on, but they're comparing it to maybe a week or two weeks in Italy or France yeah. or uh, yeah. s- somewhere like that, and they're saying, "You know, it's just we but, spent a lot more money than we would have." But you had see, we gone to, Ireland yeah. is not a cheap country. End of story. Like, like, and and the hospitality sector is not immune no more than any other sector so it doesn't matter like 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 we we have a relatively high minimum wage compared to our european friends so all of those things feed into the the cost 
of structure because everybody thinks it's just about the minimum wage. It's not. It's about all of the wage rates sitting above that and, and the comparatives around that. So so that's why we push up and, and everything you buy is more expensive. So goods that you buy are more expensive. So so we are expensive we, as 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 a country, but but like everybody thinks it's it's the hospitality business is expensive, but everything is expensive in Ireland relative to the rest of Europe. Mm, okay, um, let's talk about uh, post Delata. Yes, you said to me um, you've seven jobs now. Yes, uh, let's let's go through those. I know you, you're an investor in three startup companies. Tell I us am about indeed. Those. Yes, yeah. Will I talk about those yeah. first? Yeah. Okay, so so there's three I'm involved in. One is Alchemy, which is is based in Skerries, and um, that's uh, run by a young man called Rona McCauley, who was my IT manager in my days in Jury. So we go back along, we go back thirty years actually, and he's developed a very smart product for the hospitality sector. However, we are now looking at beyond the hospitality sector into care homes and other possible uses as well. Uh, because it's really a back of house. Um, it's it, you know there's 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 a number of different products whether it's it's time and attendance but payroll and and more importantly uh, payroll planning and management of payroll and how you can do that and like like in a Delata hotel today the general manager essentially could do a P and L today every day because he knows or she knows the cost of all of the elements of their business on that particular day. Like it's a very smart piece of kit. And then you have things like logbooks, which helps you manage all the events that go on around the building, you know, and there's handovers. So there's there's a lot of things that, so it's it started out with three people. It's now at 35 people. And we plan to have that up to over 60 by the end of this year. Are you an investor? I'm an investor, yes. Okay, that's number one. Number one. The second one is a company called Ufurnish that's based in the UK. And essentially what that does, it's a, a, a furniture retailer and manufacturer aggregator. And it's a young Irish woman, Deirdre McGettrick, and her husband Ray from, from Australia that uh, have started that business. And essentially it's, it's like the sky scanner of, furn- of, of uh, furniture retailers and manufacturers. So you want a kitchen table, you go to Ufurnish. Well, you, you can imagine you can imagine the process that you know you're looking for a piece of, mm. of furniture or a lamp or whatever, and and you have to go into every website. Whereas you want to use furnish, and that'll that'll have all of them on on the one site, so you can find where it is you can buy it, how much it's going to cost you, all of that. Is that just UK or is it UK and Ireland? It's, or? it's UK at the moment only. We're building the base in the UK, and then we'll expand beyond the shores once we get that done. An investor in that one? I'm an investor in that one as well. Okay, that's two down. And then there's a company called Nutritics, um, started by a couple of very smart guys, um, the O'Kellys, Damien and Kieran, um, and um, from North County, Dublin. And essentially it's in nutrition and allergen around food. Uh, and they've developed really smart pieces of technology to allow people to assess every recipe that they put out. It, it really was starting at food service businesses because in, in the UK now you have Natasha's law, which, which uh, meant that all allergens has to be properly identified on every menu. 
and for a lot of food producers, uh, that was a challenge. And this nutritics have the answer to all of that. And the other thing they're working on at the moment is sustainability, the footprint of food. Where does your food come from? And all of those things that go on around that. And that will be launched in June of this year. Okay. And you're an investor. I'm an investor in that. And I sit on the board of all three. Okay. So so I'm delighted to be there. And they're all young people. And Nutritics came about because there's a young guy, Stephen Nolan, who grew up across the road from me. And he's involved in the company. And he asked me to get involved. Right. Okay. Well, good. And, uh, okay, so that's Tree Down. You have four, four other jobs. So I'm on the board of House Builder Glenbay. Yeah, which I love. Great company. Um, builds really good quality homes. Uh, we are a house builder, essentially. Um, and uh, they do a fantastic job. And they're looking at a lot of new technologies now, you know, uh, timber frame, mm. uh, light gauge steel, all of those things that, that are going to reduce the, the embedded carbon in every house. Um, what about reducing the prices? Because that's I mean we talked about Ireland being expensive. Well, if you, if, Ireland if, are really expensive. If you take it the average price, uh, and and Stephen Garvey will kill me now, but the average price is is about three hundred and fifty thousand. So and that's in kind of the the greater Dublin area. Uh, we don't do a lot in city centres. We are suburban house builders, um, but like like I've and I've been in lots of their houses, and they are so well constructed so well finished and if if i always say when you're in the house you know a candle would heat it you know it's it is they're so well you know with all the new regulations would you buy one? Oh, i wouldn't have a problem in the wide earthly world buying one of their houses not a problem it's they are they are really good houses and uh, but I don't need a house at the moment. <laughs> so uh, yeah. Anyway, I suppose we could spend we could spend all day talking about the the housing crisis. We, yes. Sort the planning, and we'll sort housing. Yeah. That's they tried to do that, didn't they, with the strategic housing development legislation? Then it, then it ends up in the high court. Anyway, that's, yeah. that's neither here nor there. It's it's for so, another day. So that's that's number so four. I'm, I'm I'm still involved with uh, with uh, Kieran Wallace on. The Quinn IBRC, yeah, yeah. Uh, and that will come to an end at some point. But so, what's what's left there? So essentially, you have Buswells and the two pubs. You have the Holiday Inn in Nottingham. You have the Hilton Prague. You have the Sleeve Russell, Sleeve Russell. and then and you Prague. have uh, Ukraine. Ironically, uh, you have India, and you have some bits and pieces in Russia. They're kind of there. The, the tail end of it. And a couple of those probably have just gone for sale, haven't they? Buzzwells. Uh, for, well, yeah. they will be put on the market. There's, there's a kind of a, a, a socialising of the fact that they will come to market, yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. It's hard to believe. I mean, it's, you know, we're almost 15 years on from the financial crash, which yeah, devastated well, the country, and well, yet they're still the, in, the Quinn, in... The Quinn receivership took place on the 14th of April, 2011. And 11, okay, well, it's more than a decade. 11 years later, we're still yeah. there. Yeah. Um, so, so that's 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 it. Uh, and then I have I'm on the board of IBEC with Danny McCoy and the team, the wonderful team. Your former and, president, of course. I am, and I'm also involved now with pulling together all of the elements of the hospitality sector, what we call the experience economy. Because one of the things that struck us during the the crisis, during the COVID crisis, was that you had a lot of businesses that were very dependent on supplying 
the hospitality sector, like you have technology companies, bed makers, linen makers, you know, you name it, you know, laundry companies. All of those companies are very dependent. And so we're trying to pull everything under the banner, the experience economy. And uh, it's, uh, it's, it's something that I, 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 I love and I want to get done. Uh, because it's, it's it's an important element as when you look at the level of employment and you put all of this together like like it's on the island it's over 400,000 people like it's a big big employer for for the experience economy sure and then the final role is with the national maternity national hospital. maternity hospital yes and and which is Hollow Street as Hollow Street people would note uh, and uh, your deputy chair I'm deputy chair and that means that I am the chairman because the actual chair is the Archbishop of Dublin and he doesn't want to have any part in it, which is fine. Um, and so, so essentially I occupy that role and, and I love it. I think um, it's, it, it, is, it has magnificent people. Uh, and essentially, you know, there's, there's a job to be done to get the move done to Vincent's campus. It makes absolute sense uh, and it will happen. It's a matter of- A lot it, of controversy over this. There is, yes. Unnecessarily so. Why? Because essentially, um, this will be a ground lease, uh, and what you have to look at in a ground lease is is the terms of that lease, and there there are any restrictive covenants in that ground lease. So it doesn't matter who owns the piece of land. It's it's about, and that's where the controversy lies, isn't it? it is, that yeah. A religious order essentially will will own the piece of land. Well, they won't actually right, at the end of the day, but but even if you assume that they did, it doesn't matter because. The lease doesn't allow any interference. Like, like um, as, as I, I think I told the Lord Mayor Allison uh, that um, the mansion house is on a ground lease and that's owned by the Dawson estate. And she has to pay 40 shillings a year and two fatted capons and six pounds of sugar. Um, but it doesn't matter because Hollis Street itself is a ground lease to the Pembroke estate. So, it's it, it, once the ground lease is done, and then what you have to look out for is, you know, what is 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 the constitution of the company that you run it, and then the license that will be granted to Hollis Street to actually run the hospital, and all of those things gives huge levels of protection. And then you have a situation where uh, the National Maternity Hospital will do an SLA every year with the HSE. And Sorry, what's an SLA? No? Uh, a service level agreement that we will provide certain services and if we don't do that, the kick is out. End of story. So there's so many levels of protection here that everything that's uh, available under Irish law will be carried out in the new maternity hospital, as it is in the current maternity hospital, by the way. So when will the move happen then? Well, we've done all our agreements. Uh, and it's a matter now. It's 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 in government hands now as to when this this will happen. So, what's your best guess? I have no idea. With a fair wind, you're back. I would love to see that that we'll have an announcement soon and this year, this year, and that we we get on with preparing for the construction. Right. And how long would construction take? I I, I if I was a guessing man, I'd say we'll be on site in the new hospital in 2028. 2028, wow. That's uh, still six years away. Yes, yeah. A lot of children will be born between now and then. They will, and they'll be well taken care of.
Yeah, but there, I mean, there, there are archaic facilities. I mean, really, Dickensian well, facilities. Well, we need to, we need to be street. careful. Like, like, like the, the, I've been through it, Pat. Yeah, I've, you know, yeah. I've had the experience twice. Yes. And the staff are wonderful, no question yeah. about it. And I'm not saying all the facilities are, but some of them really are. Oh, yeah, desperate. I fully accept that. And, and like, even the width of the corridors and, you know, there's there's a lot of drawbacks. But, like, my, my first grandchild was born there. My second one will be born there in June, God willing. And uh, I'm I'm more than happy. And and you're absolutely right. Like like what what actually makes Hollis Street? It's its people, and they are a wonderful group of people. Yeah, there's no question about that. And, and like I spend a lot of time in there. And there tomorrow again. I was on a Zoom call with them this morning, and and there tomorrow again. So so every day there's something. And uh, but they are fantastically. And 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 Shane Higgins is a great master, and he he has a real tight grip on it. Um, and when the move was first proposed, what was the initial move-in date? What what was envisaged? I, you know? I, to be honest, this has been going on since twenty thirteen. Yeah. So I don't know what the, uh, the but I yeah, I would presume that they thought back in twenty thirteen it would have happened by now. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Okay. You're seventy years of age. Yes, I am. Um, was it originally your plan to keep working until 70 years of age in, a, in an executive role with the latter? Or do you think, you know, going back, let's say, to when you set the lat up, did you think you'd be retiring long before you were 70? Because no. it's it's normal for executives to go some point in their 60s, early 60s usually. I had no interest in going. And I, I, I took the decision that I'd go when I got to 70. I said, you know, because... My worry is that I wouldn't do all the good work that I had done by Legacy. by not being as uh, energetic, um, not leading the people in the way it should be led. So I took the decision, get out while you still have reasonably good health and reasonably good stam stamina, and then let the new team, because there's a great team there who are ready, willing, and able. And I'm delighted that, you know, because one of the key hallmarks of the lad is internal promotion and the fact that we had somebody willing and very able to take over me was was a joy. Did COVID sap you of some of your energy or stamina or love for the job? Not a pick. In fact, I was more energized by it because, you know, when you have 4,000 people that, that rely on you to make the right decisions, that kind of keeps you focused. So no, it didn't. One iota. Um, and thankfully, I'm lucky. I have good health, uh, both, I suppose, physically and mentally, because you need both. Uh, and, and and that sustains me. And when you look back, what was the highlight of, of your entire career? I suppose, you know, and I, I said it the other night, you know, it's, it's, it's the effect I've had on people's lives, you know, where they had because of the structures I set up, that they got opportunities to live a life that they never imagined or dreamed of. And that, to me, is the highlight. It is not all the buildings or anything like that. It's about people who have taken advantage of the opportunities I gave them. And what tip would you give some young person who's considering the hotel sector as a lifelong career? Yeah, I suppose, you know... Um, it, 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 it's a joy of an industry. And I know people say, oh, you work very hard and on social and all of that. To a certain extent, that is true. But but there there's such, I suppose, sense of, if, if, if you're, dare I say it, an outgoing person, um, 
and and you like a people business, it is one of the best businesses. I always say it to parents, if you have a child that, that's a little bit shy and a little bit, I suppose, slow in coming forward and, and, and don't feel comfortable with that, get them into the hotel business for a while. And that'll bring them out of themselves because that's what it does. Um, and, you know, you, you, I have, I've, now maybe I'm an oddball, but I, I never remember a day when I said to myself, I hate going to work. Um, and I, I often listen to young people and say, oh, I'll hang on in here and do something and then I'll wait for something better to come along. You know, if you adopt that attitude, nothing better will ever come along because that's what you've set yourself up as. Somebody just hangs in there. So they need to make sure that they're out there and, and you know, creating a difference for themselves and for people around them. Helen Khan, thank you for joining us uh, today. We wish you well in retirement. Sounds like it's going to be a busy retirement, but thanks for sharing those memories with us here on Inside Business. Thank you, Karen. Delighted as usual. And thank the Irish Times for looking after me all these years. <laughs> all right. Thanks, Pat. Okay, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Pat McCann for joining me on the show. This episode was produced by Jennifer Ryan with JJ Vernon on sound. Thanks also to our sponsor, EY. Remember, you can get the latest business news delivered into your inbox by signing up to our Business Today email at irishtimes.com. And you can follow the Irish Times business feed daily on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care.